Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here on B'nai We thank you for watching any way that you might view us, whether that's on Facebook Live, on the Internet, or on our mobile app. From our family to yours, thank you and Shabbat Shalom. Right now it's November 15th, and we are approaching the end of the year. Uh, we have one final event for 2019, and that is our Hanukkah conference that's held here in Norman, Oklahoma. You can go to HanukkahEvent.com and re- register your family there. Uh, teens and children are free, so we hope that uh, that's a blessing to you, uh, that you might be able to join us for that festive time. Also, with it being the end of the year, it's the season of giving. And if you're blessed by this broadcast and our ministry, uh, we humbly ask that you would go to llgive.com and you can make a donation there if you are blessed and stirred in your heart to give a gift uh, to our ministry. Once again, Shabbat Shalom and thank you for joining us. Now let us set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing Amen. over the cup. Baruch HaTadonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGahafin Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. 
Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Husbands, let's bless our wives. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given, given to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Adonai Hamvorach, Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Le'olam Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Ba'elim Adonai. Michamocha, nedahar bachodesh, norat echilot, Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. 
Veshramu Vene Israel et Hashabat, La Sot et Hashabat, Ladrotam, Barit Olam, Bene of Ayom, Bene Israel, Othi Lerlam, Keshashet Yamim, Asadunai, et Hashamayim, Vet Haret, Vayom Hashavi, Shabbat, Vainafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha Veheyu hadevarim haale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavecha. Vashinan tam lavenecha, vadepardabam beshiftecha, beyetacha, uvlatacha, vederech ushakbika, uvkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totavolt binenecha, uketatama mozuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us this Shabbat and who has called us to this place to praise his name. O Holy One of Israel, blessed are you, whose kingdom is forever and ever. We honor you in this place. We lift your name high. We dance before you, for you are holy. You are Kadosh. Shalom. Please join us as we read from Parashah Lech Lecha. Shabbat Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah Vayera. Now Adonai appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Avraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Avraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. And he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There, in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord also being old? And Adonai said to Avraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for Adonai? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Avraham was walking with them to send them off. Adonai said, Shall I hide from Avraham what I am about to do, since Avraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Adonai by doing righteousness and justice so that Adonai may bring upon Avraham what he has spoken about him. And Adonai said, The outcry of Sodom and Amorah is indeed great, 
and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Avraham was still standing before Adonai. Avraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So Adonai said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Avraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to Adonai, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may Adonai not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to Adonai. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then he said, Oh, may Adonai not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, Adonai departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Chapter 19 Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they were wearied themselves trying to find the door. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you, have, have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before Adonai that Adonai has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for Adonai will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife 
and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of Adonai was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains for disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to and it is a small place. Please let me escape there. Is it not small? that my life may be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then Adonai reigned on Sodom and Amorah, brimstone and fire from Adonai out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she had become a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before Adonai. And he looked down toward Sodom and Amorah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about, when Elohim destroyed the cities of the valley, that Elohim remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn son said to the younger, our father is old and there's not a man on the earth to come in after us in the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moavi to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Chapter 20. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But Elohim came to Avimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Avimelech had not come near her, and he said, Adonai, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he himself not say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then Elohim said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. 
But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Avimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Avimelech called Avraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Avimelech said to Avraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? Avraham said, Because I thought surely there is no fear of Elohim in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about, when Elohim caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is the kindness which you will show me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Avimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Avraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Avimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given you a brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. Avraham prayed to Elohim, and Elohim healed Avimelech and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children. For Adonai had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Avimelech because of Sarah, Avraham's wife. Chapter 21. Then Adonai took note of Sarah as he had said, and Adonai did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Avraham in his old age at the appointed time of which Elohim had spoken to him. Avraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah had born to him, Yitzhak. Then Avraham circumcised his son Yitzhak when he was eight days old, as Elohim had commanded him. Now Avraham was 100 years old when his son Yitzhak was born to him. Sarah said, Elohim has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Avraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Avraham made a great feast on the day that Yitzhak was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Avraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Avraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Yitzhak. The matter distressed Avraham greatly because of his son. But Elohim said to Avraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Yitzhak your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Avraham rose early in the morning, and took bread and a skin of water, and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bowshot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. Elohim heard the lad crying, and the angel of Elohim called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for Elohim has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then Elohim opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. Elohim was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. 
Now it came about at that time that Avimelech and Pichol, the commander of his army, spoke to Avraham, saying, Elohim is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by Elohim that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land which you have sojourned in. Avraham said, I swear it. But Avraham complained to Avimelech because the well of water which his servants, the servants of Avimelech had seized. And Avimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. Avraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Avimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Then Avraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Avimelech said to Avraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Avimelech and Pichol, the commander of the army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Avraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of Adonai, the everlasting Elohim. And Avraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines many days. Chapter 22 Now it came about after these things that Elohim tested Avraham and said to him, Avraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzhak, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Avraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Yitzhak his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which Adonai had told him. On the third day, Avraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Avraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Avraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Yitzhak his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Yitzhak spoke to Avraham his father and said, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Avraham said, Elohim will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which Elohim had told him. And Avraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Yitzhak and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Avraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of Adonai called to him from heaven and said, Avraham, Avraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him. For I, now I know that you fear Elohim, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Avraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Avraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Then Avraham, Avraham called the name of that place, Adonai will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of Adonai it will be provided. Then the angel of Adonai called to Avraham a second time from the heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Adonai, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. 
and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Avraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Avraham lived at Beersheba. Now it came about after these things, that it was told Avraham, saying, Behold, Milcah has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, and Boaz his brother, and Kemuel, the father of Aram, and Chesed, and Chazo, and Pildash, and Jidlaf, and Betuel. Betuel became the father of Rivka. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Avram's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reumah, also bore Teba, and Gaham, and Tahash, and Ma'aka. This concludes the reading of Parashah Vayera. At the very beginning of this Parashah, we read these words. Now Adonai appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, to understand the significance of these first two verses of chapter 18, we must first look at the last few verses in chapter 17. It says there in verse 24, Now Avraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. This suggests that Avraham had just become circumcised and was still in that state when chapter 18 begins. He was in pain, which is why he looked up as he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. So during the hottest time of the day, he was sitting in the tent door under the shade of his tent, looking down because he was in pain, as you can understand. And yet he looks up and he runs, it says, to greet the men. And he bows before the men. And of course, we know that these men turn out to be more than just men. But he didn't know that at that time. He simply put aside his personal pain to go serve. Do we follow in Abraham's footsteps? Do we run to serve others even when we're in pain? Even when it's not convenient for us? Even when we really don't want to? Let's be like our father Abraham, loving our neighbor in such a fashion that we're willing to run to serve them, even when we're in pain. Because you never know who you might be entertaining. Yeshua said, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Let's make it our life mission to be a blessing to everyone we encounter and may they see him in us and glorify his name. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. Um, the corresponding Haftor portion to Vayera uh, is, comes in this passage of 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 through verse 37. Now, the reason why there's a parallel uh, for this passage that goes back to the passage about Abraham and Sarah has to do primarily with Sarah. And you'll see in this passage that we're going to have a story about another lady. Uh, and because of that, that's the reason why this passage is tied in together. There's some very interesting spiritual features in this passage that forms part of the basis of when we go and we examine Abraham's faith. 
uh, Ephraim, in sharing uh, the Torah portion this week with you, emphasized the nature of Abraham's faith, the strength of his faith. You're going to see uh, Elisha, the prophet here, uh, going to do something which is a, a kind of a walking out practical example, a providential example, if you will, of that same kind of faith. How does that kind of faith work in everyday providential things that happen and sets a couple of wonderful principles and examples for us. How do we apply the principles that we learn from the Torah? How how do they take up and become a reality in our own personal walk, you know, before our neighbors, before our friends, before the Lord? And so there's a couple of interesting features that come out in this. And I'm sure you're familiar with the basic story here. We're going to talk about a Shulamite woman who is in desperate need for finances, and Elijah the prophet will direct her uh, to gather jars and containers, and God will fill them with oil. She'll sell that, and that will meet her needs. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But before I get into this, I, I do want to do just a little bit of a background here. Elisha was the disciple of Elijah. Elijah is a very famous prophet, of course, um, and with the one that dealt with Jezebel, the one that called fire down from from heaven um, and uh, that judged the prophets of uh, Baal. And so we know about that, but a lot of times uh, his disciple Elisha, who also did some rather incredible things, uh, and this is an example of his life in, in, as we look into Second Kings, um, about things about him. And there's references made uh, both in the days of Elijah and in Elisha in particular. In fact, it actually goes all the way back to the days of King Saul, that there was something called the school of prophets that was in the land of Israel, that Israel had many prophets and they lived uh, east of Jerusalem. They lived down in the area that we referred to as Qumran and Gilgal and the Jordan Valley area. And in fact, that is the area where Elijah was at with Elisha, with Elisha, that that the 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 Lord's chariot came down and gathered uh, Elijah up. It was in that region, in that area of the land of Israel, where all those events took place. And that was in the area where we have the school of prophets. And in the course of the reading, you're going to hear about Elisha going in, and there he's going to meet sons of the prophets. He's going to, and, and he himself and other prophets like him are referred to as the man of God. And these men, these people, were known to be anointed by God. They were known to, to be called by God for very specific things. And uh, they didn't necessarily go out like an evangelist where they went out preaching and so forth. But they did deal with a lot of things that the people were dealing with. They, they would speak into very specific things. After this passage, you're going to hear about a, a leper being cleansed by Elisha and, and things like that. So let's kind of understand the background of what's, what is the terrain like where we're dealing with. Uh, if you do an over a comprehensive study of the Bible, one of the things you're going to discover, there are two classes of prophets that are given to us in the scriptures. The one, one is called, we call them word prophets. And those are the prophets that wrote books in the Bible. 
Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they were called word prophets. They would, uh, they would do things, but they would write down uh, their prophetic messages in the form of a scroll, in a book. And so we referred to them as word prophets. For the most part, they tended to be prophets to correct leaders and correct kings. Uh, the other class of prophets, and uh, Elisha falls into this, Elijah is like the leading one of these, is referred to as an ecstatic prophet, uh, where their prophecies tend to come in an ecstatic form, a very spontaneous form. They don't necessarily put their energies into writing a text for us, but their words are very clearly recorded, their deeds are recorded. And so when you look at the books like Chronicles and Kings, which tend to be more historical texts, we don't call them prophetic books, uh, what they are is these were the books written by um, scribes that worked for the king. And they were the historians, uh, and they were scribes, and they would work for the king or the king's house to record, you know, the activities of the king or the activities of the kingdom. And so the books that we're reading from were written by scribes recording significant or major events that happened in the kingdom. And, and at this particular time, as you know, uh, the kingdom of Israel is divided. We have a northern kingdom. We have a southern kingdom. The area to the north, they tend to refer to it as Samaria, uh, whereas the kingdom to the south is referred to as Judea. Uh, and that's where you see the division, you know, the northern southern kingdom. And we have these prophets operating. And from the days of Saul, these ecstatic prophets began to emerge. In fact, there's a very interesting story about Saul, King Saul, in trying to get his heart right with the Lord, went down and actually went to where the school of the prophets were and were down there with the school of prophets and was joining in that community and with them. And uh, they, everybody, everybody in the country was thinking, what, what happened to Saul? What, did he lose his mind? I mean, he's down there, you know, laying around with the, with the school of prophets thing. And for the rest of the nation, this group of people, these ecstatic prophets, um, had a tremendous impact. And by the way, there was an a incredible reputation about the God of Israel that was promoted by them that even other kings and other lands knew about. And uh, there were those who would seek the counsel of the king of Israel in the hopes that one of those prophets that was in the school would render aid or attention or help uh, for their particular plight, whatever it was. So it was considered to be, these prophets were considered to be one of the assets of the nation of Israel. And so that's part of the reason why I think uh, the, the royal scribes, those of the house of the king, would record their events because... These prophets became part of the, the definition of the good things that Israel had, the resources that Israel had. They had prophets uh, who could speak for the Lord and bring to bear the power of Almighty God into specific situations. And uh, there are many stories on it. Some are viewed by, uh, as too fantastic. I don't think they were too fantastic at all. I, just, I don't think they were accustomed to dealing with people that were that anointed and that committed to the Lord. 
And so they come off as an oddity or as, as something strange. Let me go ahead and just tell you, and we've all experienced this to some degree. If you decide, I, I don't care what your life has been, uh, if you decide all of a sudden, boy, you're just going to really turn your life over to the Lord, uh, and you get very committed to the Lord, and I mean all of a sudden the Lord becomes priority number one in your life and just like everything else sheds away from you, even your closest family and some of your brethren are going to look at you with a jaundice eye and say, what did you, you do, lose your mind? You know, that it, it's shocking, it, it's disturbing when people see commitment to the Lord that is that their their words and their deeds match. And they tend to view somebody who gets that serious about the Lord as you've gone just a little slightly crazy. And the reason is, is because of the incredible um, difference that walking a life out with God where he's powerfully walking in your life that way, walking in the anointing versus the normal lifestyle, you know, the rest of the world has, they, they just can't reconcile it, even though it, they're religious people to begin with as well. Uh, I remember when I, as a young man, uh, you know, in the military, we would see, and this was a common thing, we would see our fellow sailors, fellow uh, military people, where the Lord would get a hold of a guy. And all of a sudden, he would, we quote, we would say, got religion, or he got God. And all of a sudden, this guy is devoted to his prayer, his Bible study, and um, doesn't want to do the other guy things that the rest of the guys would do on liberty or, you know, when they got a, a pass from the base. All of a sudden, these guys wanted to walk uprightly and righteously and, and do good. And it was such a shocking thing to see. A lot of guys just thought they'd lost their mind. They thought they'd gone crazy. Just on a, they were turning the life around, repenting and turning and walking with the Lord. A, a lot of messianics. Uh, even though they've been in church for many years, um, uh, when suddenly you wake up to Torah and all of a sudden the commands of the Lord and all of a sudden the common things of the faith, we believe in the Messiah, we believe he's the Redeemer, all of a sudden those become extremely powerful in your life, extremely powerful to where you see the Messiah not only as the Redeemer, you see the given as the giver of the Torah and you see him as the God of creation. And you see a powerful, a much more powerful picture of it, and you begin to identify with it and walk it out. And, and God forbid that you would suggest that you're part of the commonwealth of Israel, that you've been adopted in, into the kingdom that God established with Abraham. Oh, my goodness, that's scary. You know, you're, you're, you're not in the same church club anymore. You know, you, you, you've gone beyond that. And a lot of our church brethren and family members that are religious, they, they, this is shocking to them. It, it's disturbing. These ecstatic prophets would do that to everybody. Uh, the king, uh, the other fellow citizens, uh, enemies, and so forth. These ecstatic prophets would be so powerful in their walk and faith, that it, and that's the reason why they call them this classification of ecstatic prophets. It's like all of a sudden they come and they like jolt you with electricity. I mean, there, there's something dramatically and more powerful about them and how they operate. Well, here's the story about one of these ecstatic prophets, Elisha, and what's going to happen. Let me go ahead and read this passage with that background and share with you about what one of these prophets does. The disciple of Elijah, who asked for a double anointing from what Elijah had. 
So let me assure you, this is a very powerful prophet in doing the will of God. Very wise. Uh, he didn't write a book, but we have recorded for us some of the things that he did. And we're going to hear from it. So from Second Kings 4, let me begin to read now for you. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your friend feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take away my two children to be slaves. In those ancient days, if you became indebted, you would have to sell yourself into a slavery for a period of time. This is Hebrew law. You would sell yourself in, and there was a certain value assigned to your life. In the case of... um, I'm trying to remember in the case of, of, of a man, you know, your equivalent value is like four bushels of barley. A woman was like three bushels of barley, children a little bit less. You would sell yourself in slavery, and the value of those commodities was credited to you as payment. Now, there was limitations. If your debt was much greater, you could only serve for seven years. Whatever That was the maximum limit. You would serve as a servant for seven years to pay your debt, and at that point you were free and clear. But if your debt was only a couple of bushels, well, then maybe you serve it for a year, you know, whatever the value is. It was a, it was a very interesting system. If you became so indebted, then you, all you could do was sell yourself into it. Well, here's a woman. The debt is great, and the only thing that she has of value is her two children. And that would have been a certain valuation to pay for the debt. That's her concern. Uh, Verse 2, Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few You shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out all of these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. And it came about when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said unto her, There is not one vessel more, and the oil stopped. Now, let me kind of explain what happened. She had one jar of oil. The prophet said to her, bring other vessels into your house. Close the door and take from the vessel that you have of the oil and pour that oil into the vessel. And in so pouring it in, it filled the vessel. That literally new oil was formed in the very act of her pouring out the one jar of oil that she had. And they would bring another vessel, and she would fill it. And they'd bring another, and she would fill it. She would bring, And she's still filling, and she says, bring another vessel. There's no more vessels. There's no more containers. There's no more things that will hold oil. That's the moment the oil stopped. Now, what follows is she's then directed to take that oil and sell that to pay her, her, her creditor, to pay off her debt. Um, and this whole story reminds us a little bit of this commodity, this olive oil product, and, and it's not a far stretch. If you believe in the story of Yeshua feeding the multitudes, of breaking loaves and breaking fish into pieces to feed the people, 
He did essentially the same thing this woman did with the jar of oil. This one item, it was a small item, was multiplied into a great amount. And we, it's absolutely fascinating to, to see that unfold. It's clearly a miracle beyond any expectations and in the matter. Um, and she was able to, um, verse 7, Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go and sell the oil, pay your debt, you and your sons can live on the rest. Now, there's a very interesting principle at work here that usually slips by a lot of people. Now, let's step back and make sure that we understand what, what spiritual principle is at work here. It's wondrous that God provided an abundance out of a small part. That's, that's terrific. And so forth. But the process in which that he directed her after God had done the good thing was the following. Pay your debt first, and then you consume of what's left over. Now, let me tell you, <laughs> that's the exact opposite of people many times who come to me that have great need. When people come to me as a minister working in a pastoral role, and they are in need, their family is in need, they'll come to me and they, um, they've hung on to their money for what they need, for their food, for their things, and that's the reason why they held off from paying the debt. They made themselves the priority, and the debtor is the one who's falling by the side, and they're, they're having trouble meeting the debtor. Reminds me of a very famous story uh, in the Navy uh, about the poor sailor uh, who uh, gets the, a letter, comes to the captain of the ship. And this sailor has not been paying his bills. And so his division officer sets to counsel with him, and he says, Sailor, you... You've borrowed money. You owe debt. You have to pay these debts. You must, you know, maintain good faith in, in, in your indebtedness. And so he says, well, sir, he said, I just don't have enough. I mean, a sailor pay is real low and so forth. And by the way, they just need to get luckier. And he goes, they need to get luckier. What are you talking about? He said, well, first, you know, I take money out for my food. I take money out for my laundry. Uh, I take money out for my liberty. And then whatever's left, I pay to my creditors. And the way to do it, I do it fair, is I put all my creditors on a little piece of paper, put it in my hat, I reach in each month, and I pull out one name, and that's the one that gets a payment. And, by the way, those guys that are complaining, they just haven't won the, the, the drawing out of my hat for the last couple of months. That's the problem. And, you know, the whole mentality of how you manage the debt is just wacky. Let me tell you what Elisha told her. Pay your creditors first. You come last. Wow. Well, that's completely contrary to what most people consider when they're in an in, in indebted situation. What is the logic behind that? Why did, why did he give that direction? By the way, the principle I'm explaining here, this is the wisdom teaching that's been taught by the sages of Israel on this passage. This is what's been taught to the Jewish people for, for centuries from this passage. It is this business that you pay your debts first before you take care of you. 
And the reason why it is, is because of this. Because we have promises from God that he will take care of us. You know, listen to the Messiah's exhortation. He said, look at the birds of the heaven. Does not God take care of them? Do you see them starving? Do you see them in need? Does not God of of heaven take care of the birds of heaven? Look look at the other creatures. Doesn't God take care of them too? How much more is God going to take care of you than those? And and essentially what Yeshua taught in that passage was, you know, this is from Matthew chapter 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Seek first to do that which is according to his instructions. And then God will take care of you just fine. So what was one of the instructions that we've been given in the Torah? If you enter into a business agreement, such as a credit card, purchase of a product or service, then do so in good faith. Do so with the full intent to keep your end of the bargain. And if that means make the payment on time and correctly to the amount, do it. That's what you agreed to. Because when you don't do it, you bring discredit upon yourself and you destroy your own testimony in the Lord. I remember growing up in my hometown. My hometown. And hearing a businessman once tell me, that the worst people that they had to extend credit to were pastors and the sheriff. Because those people wouldn't pay their bills on time. And it was always a struggle to get them to fulfill their part of the agreement. And as a result, I'm as young boy. I've never forgotten this. I heard this businessman. He said, if you think I'm going to one of their churches, you got another thing coming. I said, now, in the case of the sheriff, I ain't voting for him again. But in the case of the pastors, I'm not darkening the door of their church. I believe they're phonies. They say obey the Lord. They themselves don't. They're not honorable in their agreements. Guess what what, uh, Elisha tells her? Pay your debts first. Then you will have enough. Trust the Lord. You'll have enough. The Lord will take care of you. But to maintain that, I have a, a confession to make. I, uh, when I was younger and, and I was uh, growing up in my home, I, I was in one of those poor homes. My father was not faithful in paying his bills. The reputation of him watershedded all the way down to me. When I became a young man, because I was his son, there was great apprehension. The first time I ever went in to get a loan on a, on a car, they met, I, I didn't even have a credit rating yet because I was his son. They assumed that I would be, I was taught like he was taught and I would probably do the same things that he did. And by the way, that would be true. And as a young man in, in, in learning how to manage my finances and, and so forth, I, I had the same struggles. Um, but I had made a commitment as a young man that I didn't want to live that way. I didn't want to live and be poor. 
I wanted to find a way to, to do this so that my family wouldn't be in need all the time, which is what I grew up in. And so, and I asked God to help me to do that. Well, I'll tell you what God turned around in my whole life. I'll tell you exactly what he did. He taught me how to pay my bills first. Pay my debts first to my creditors. Maintain my good name. You know, Proverbs says a good name is worth more than fine gold. And by the way, it's referring to your credit rating is what that verse is about. Your reputation to enter into agreements with people. Um, I have an excellent credit rating. In fact, I have a very excellent credit rating. I've worked hard to maintain it and to keep it going. And it is part of my criteria is to, for me to be an elder, for me to be a leader of the flock. One of my criteria is I have to have a good reputation without reproach outside of the household of faith as well as inside the household of faith. And my reputation outside of the household of faith is how I do and conduct my business. If I hire a man to work in my yard or to do personal services for me at my house, guess what day he gets paid that day? He does not leave without his pay. We, he doesn't walk off the job and go, oh, I wonder when Monty's going to pay me, uh, uh, you know, because it just puts him into a wonder. He goes home to his wife. Well, did you get paid? Well, no, not yet. Uh, well, when are you going to get paid? Uh, gee, I don't know. Ed, 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 he's worthy of his hire. You know, Messiah specifically talked about how you manage debt. Even when you take a, a, a pledge from someone who owes you, even, even you're supposed to be very sensitive to this. If, if, a, if a widow gives you a pledge or if somebody gives you a pledge of their cloak, something that they desperately need, you even return it to them that day at the end of the day so that they have it during the nighttime. They can come back and give it to you again uh, on another day. But you make sure it's returned properly and returned promptly. The whole business of how we interact with those that we owe debt to and those who owe debt to us is extremely powerful in terms of how you walk out your faith, your trust in God. By you paying your debtors first and your wife says to you, well, what, what are we going to live on? Well, you, the announcement is we're going to trust the Lord. And the Lord will take care of us. By the way, any person I've ever seen that ever did this, I've never seen one go in need. Never heard of a single testimony. And in my own life, when I have done that, never missed a thing. My needs were met. The Lord came through for me. Things happened that I hadn't even known of, but the Lord took care of me. That is a completely different change of thinking. Now, this woman comes to Elisha, and for whatever reason, whatever the dynamics is, she finds herself in a situation where she's in debt. Her husband, the main resource to provide revenue and provide resources, suddenly is missing. She has no ability to bring in revenues and in increase to even begin to address the problem. So when the prophet sees that, 
And here's that. He says, this is an appropriate place for God's resources to be applied to you and your faith. And he supplies it. It's very simple, very straightforward. It's not anything spectacular. She doesn't have to jump through three fiery hoops. There's no recriminations afterwards. She's not going to be upbraided later on. Help is rendered when there was no chance of help. And he does it graciously, not because it's him. He's just the servant of God. These are the resources from the Lord, and it's applied to it. Uh, I might also mention in this particular story, there's one other dimension that always gets everybody's attention here, and that is that we're talking about oil. And I've probably been asked uh, at least a good 80, 90 times, uh, I won't say 100 times, but it's, it's, I think it's a little less than 100 times, but a bunch. Well, Monty, we're in the great tribulation. We have our vehicles. We have gasoline and so forth. And how, how are we going to get gasoline? How will we get fuel for our equipment to, to when we're escaping in the great escape and all this? Well, I say, well, you know, I, I don't think God is hindered on this thing. If he can make oil show up in a jar, he surely can make gasoline show up in a gas tank. And he can fill the tank if that's what he wants to do. So the issue is not the fear of uh, how will we pay. The fear is not the issue of, of those things. We need to be focused on doing what are the priorities the Lord wants to get done. He will take care of these other kinds of, quite honestly, mundane things. These simple things. He will take care of those. He has promised us the provision so that we might live, that we might be protected that we will accomplish his will. I guarantee you that if the Lord wants to get you from this place to this place, and it turns out it's just you need some gasoline, I don't think my God is that's too, too beyond the power of his hand to make that happen. Now, it might be their other brethren will join in and will help one another. I fully expect that. But uh, I have every, um, every, every sense that my God is that powerful. In stories that we read here, we see how that power came to bear to the benefit to a woman, a, a widow, with two small children, came to bear for her. So, you know, for all of those single older ladies that are going to be part of the camp, <laughs> you're in the same boat with her. I have a feeling that God knows how to take care of her, knows how to take care of you and me, you know, uh, together with it. All right, let me let me continue on. And in my last few minutes of our teaching, let me uh, carry on with the rest of this passage. Uh, again, 2 Kings 4, uh, now going to verse 8. Now, there came a day when Elisha passed over to, the, to Shunan, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing us by continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber, and let us set a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand. And it shall be when he comes to us that he may turn in there. One day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and rested. 
Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shulamite. And when he had called her, she stood before him, and he said, Say now to her, Behold, you have been careful for us with all of this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army? And she answered, I live among my own people. So he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Truly, she has no son, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. And when he called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, at this season, next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Now, you remember the the three figures come. They have lunch with Abraham. And at this time next year, you're going to have a son. You know, the problem. This is a repeat almost word for word. Almost word for word. He promises to her that God is going to give her a son. And she's like, instead of laughing, she's like so overtaken with, with, with uh, and apprehension. She says, oh, please don't lie to me about such a thing. Don't, don't say and then disappoint me. You know, because that is something I would desire so greatly. Please don't lie to me. It would do so much harm to me if, if this is not, is not true. And the woman conceived... And bore a son at that season, the exact next year, as Elisha had said to her. Now, the rest of this passage goes on to say, here comes the son. She's pleased. Now, let's review for a moment. Here's this woman who sees the prophet coming by. That whatever his journeys were, he would frequently come there. And in fact, in those days, he was probably traveling from that area near Gilgal down in the Jordan River, traveling up into the other part of the lands, up toward Mount Carmel, up into the Galilee, traveling to the different areas of Israel. And he probably was taking the same common route from the Jordan Valley going past her place and so forth. And she began to notice this and had a sense of who he was. And so she decided of her own with her husband to make a temporary stopping place to make an inn for him to and so they built above their home they built up the walls and and there and they added to the roof and they made him a safe place to stay at night you know all they had was a bed and a small table and a little bit of light he could stop there for the night sleep get up the next morning proceed on and he didn't have to set up camp everything was right there for him and it was she was showing great hospitality you remember abraham showing hospitality to the lord you know, so she's showing hospitality to the prophet. Now, when he sees that and has fully been receiving it, he wants to share back with her. What what is it that you desire? What what would be good for you? You know, you've done something good for me. Let me let me share back with you. Have you ever heard the expression that he who shares with a prophet receives a prophet's reward? It's in the scripture. If you help a man of God, you receive the reward that a man of God receives. I mean, this is I'm not just trying to self-promote here. I'm telling you, there's a real a real spiritual principle at work. And I've seen this in my own life when I've gone and ministered and where people uh, really rolled out the hospitality for me and so forth. 
I have, upon leaving, I have called out to the Lord, uh, to them, and told them that uh, in, in the measure that you have shared hospitality and kindness to me, may God pour that out on you now, uh, it, that, which would work for you and would help you. Well, he discovers that the greatest desire of her heart is to have a son, to have a child. And so she has this child. Now, what the rest of the portion goes through, I don't have time to read all of it to you, but let me just briefly tell you. This child, this young son, rises up. Everything's going great. And all of a sudden, it appears that he dies. He's lifeless. And this woman then pursues Elisha the prophet. Pursues him. Finds him explains what the situation is going back to do not lie to me about it i mean it's just as tragic to have the son and then the son die every bit as much as you never had a son elisha comes lays down with the child uses his own body warmth on the child and raises this child from the dead again the power of what God is able to do. No matter what life throws at you. No matter what the circumstances that you may be. Even if you thought you were tracking along with the Lord. And then all of a sudden terrible something. That doesn't mean that what God started to do with you is over and done with. God remains faithful to us. Day in and day out. And appealing to the Lord. And trusting the Lord. She turned the matter over to the prophet. Let the prophet do what God wants to do. And so he used the warmth of his body, warmed the child up. I mean, it was, the kid was dead, cold dead, raised this child up. Now, it's, that's, a, and that's an incredible miracle. I mean, that's a miracle on the proportion of, of, of Yeshua raising Lazarus. When Yeshua raised Lazarus, that wasn't the first time that had happened in the land. Does this give you a sense of how powerful these ecstatic prophets were? No, they're not the prophets who wrote books. But they were very powerful prophets used by God for the benefit of the people in the practical matters of the faith. Um, do we have ecstatic prophets in the world today? Well, that's a very interesting question. That's a very interesting question. I can tell you if we do have them, and by the way, I have heard of testimonies of people being raised in the faith, in other lands. I've heard some very interesting miracles that have taken place for different people. I can tell you right now that Mark Chitty can give you some testimonies of serving food out at the Feast of Tabernacles that they thought there was never going to be enough And they said, just keep serving and we'll just keep praying. And for some reason, the entire line got through the pot. Everybody got their portions and they didn't run out until the last person went through the line. Almost like these things happen naturally. Instead of being this stupendous miracle. I'll tell you 
as I read these things and as I come to understand this, in my own walk in faith, I'll share this with you. We, most of us in our religious walk, we view when God does something significant, that's the supernatural. I submit to you it's the other way around. That is the natural. You and I are constantly living in a state of the unnatural. Because it was always God's intent when he created us that none of us would ever be in need, that he would provide adequately for all of us at all times. When we get to the kingdom, it won't be supernatural. It will actually be the real natural that God always intended. But compared to now, it will seem supernatural. Just because the disruption and the harm uh, that has come into the world and to the creation has messed so many things up. So as a result, when I walk my faith and, and I see God do something that other brethren say is a miracle, I don't react to it as being a miracle. I think that's normal. That's the way it's supposed to happen. I prayed for healing. God heard my prayer. He wanted to heal him. He healed him. That's not something I jump up and down and spike the football on. That's the way it's supposed to be in our faith. If you go around, I'm not trying to put anybody's down on their face, but to to illustrate the comparison. If you're all excited about a miracle, God doing a miracle in your life, uh, it really brings into question, what did you really believe that God was going to do? When he finally does something, if it comes off as a miracle to you, stunning to you, well, what were you expecting him to do? did, Did you believe what he said? Or did that come as a shock to you? Um, you know, we talk about the, uh, uh, the reasons for Sarah laughing. The reasons why we laugh. Uh, it's because we're going along one form of mind and then suddenly something jolts us. But let's say that you had been and you knew what God was going to do. And all of a sudden this wondrous thing happens. But you knew what God was going to do. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't cause you to laugh. You don't. You were going along that same path. It didn't come as a jolt to you. You were already there. Maybe that's the reason why Abraham didn't laugh and Sarah did laugh. Abraham was already oriented to what God was doing and was going to do. Who knows? I know for me that I've said, Lord, train me up to walk in your ways so that even miracles don't surprise me. Train me up so it's just part of the normal walk, you know, and we just press on and do the work. Amen? All right, let's pray. And that is our portion in Hoftor portion for this week. Father, thank you for this Sabbath and for this teaching portion. Thank you for the encouragement. I ask, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, use these words, these testimonies to edify us in our most holy faith. Build us up, Lord. Strengthen us in your ways. Teach us how to walk out our faith before you. And it be active and vibrant and powerful in our lives. We ask all of this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. Hold your finger there at verse 4. 
where the Brit Hadashah portion uh, for our Torah portion this week will begin. And as you do that, let us go before the Lord and turn this time over to Him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and this week, uh, Father, and we thank you for your teaching and your instruction. Father, bless us as we go through the New Testament for this week, and may we be encouraged and strengthened uh, as we look at your Torah, the living Word of God, and how it impacts us in our personal lives. So, Father, we thank you for being with us here at this time. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is Vayera, which means, and I appeared, and and he appeared. And this is when the Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. This is a very, this is actually one of my favorite Torah portions in which the Abraham actually gets to sit down and have lunch with the Lord. And the Lord presents himself in three separate persons and he have a, a, he serves a meal to them and shows great hospitality to the Lord. And then also this is when the promise of the, of Isaac to be born, the promised son, is given to Abraham at this time saying that he will have a son through his wife Sarah and this will be the promised son. This is once again one of the other parallels to our Messiah Yeshua as Isaac being the promised son to Abraham is fulfilling the same, is a prophetic, is a prophecy of the Messiah to come who is the promised son of God who will come and be the savior to the world. There's amazing parallels in all of those things. And then we also have the time in which Abraham negotiates with the Lord for Sodom and Gomorrah, where his nephew Lot is residing. But we know that this was obviously a terrible place and that God then tells Abraham what he is about to do, that he's going to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And we have Abraham able to negotiate with the Lord for if the Lord were to find any righteous there in the city, that God would spare his judgment. We also have the promise of Isaac actually being born, him being weaned, and the great celebration of that, as well as the dismissal of Hagar and Ishmael, who were the other, the other wife, the handmaiden of Sarah, that Abraham fathered another child through. And we also have in our Torah portion the Akidah, or the binding of Isaac, when Abraham's faith was tested. Now, with all of these stories and things that are going on in our Torah portion, there are so many avenues that we can talk about, things that we can study specifically about the Torah portion, how they impact our lives, how they parallel the Messiah. And what I hope to do, obviously, with the Brit Hadashah portion for this week is to bring out some of those highlights of our Torah portion, but teach them, of course, through the words of the New Testament. So in Second Peter, at chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 4, we have a warning to us that is given to us by Peter, who is writing, who was a bondservant of the Messiah, and is writing one of these letters, and he's trying to share what he knows. And what he is teaching us here, and, and the headline here in my New King James says that this is a warning to false teachers, to people who are... Um, who say that they are believers but actually aren't, who aren't righteous, who do not act with righteousness, and that it is a warning that judgment comes to even the household of faith. And he uses the parallel and the pattern of the judgment that was put upon Sodom and Gomorrah in this teaching. Let me now read here at Second Peter uh, chapter 2, at verse 4, where it says this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, 
a preacher of righteousness, bringing in a flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. This is a warning, of course, to that God is a just God that brings judgment to those who walk in iniquity, walk in lawlessness. He once again quoted, went back to the story of uh, Noah, where that we had the judgment that was upon the entire world, that Noah, along with one of eight people, were saved from that judgment because of the wickedness and the depravity and, the, and all of the sin that was going on at that time. He also mentioned at the very beginning of the passage something that sometimes gets touched on, sometimes not, all the way back to the fall of the angels, that there are angels in creation that have fallen, but then have been then reserved for judgment, put into chains of darkness. This goes into the deeper spiritual nature of what God created in the, in the creation, that he created man and woman, but he created us to be less than the angels. But then there even has been a rebellion in the heavens of the angels that have been cast down, and that's where we believe, where we have gotten demons, and where Satan has his dominion and reign, and that, but God has still put judgment upon them. Even angels that God created, when we think of angels, we're like, man, angels, if they're greater than men, they're these heavenly beings that surely that they will have, that they carry some sort of clout with the Lord, but no, even in their sin and their depravity, does God judge them? So then even for us, why would we ever think that we walk in some righteous way that we would somehow be able to avoid judgment? Absolutely not. We must understand, and it's through these examples, the example of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, that God is a just God, that he will bring about judgment. And sometimes that judgment, we can get caught up in it. But there is hope. There is hope that God does deliver those who are righteous. That Lot, being the one righteous man that they could find in Sodom and Gomorrah, when the angels appeared before in the cities and went to Lot, and Lot had to pull the angel in from the streets to make sure that then nothing, no harm came to him because of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. It specifically said there in Second Peter where it said this, that the ones who do perform these terrible acts, this wickedness, that they're self-willed, they act presumptuously, they speak evil of dignitaries. Even if there is an angelic majesty that is in your presence, the one that is the, a, a powerful, one, one that has authority, spiritual authority or positional authority, that even the worst of the wicked even speak ill of one who is greater than them, even in the presence of them. This is the same way that the people that would stand up, that would, that would speak out against any sort of positional authority. These are the people that when you're talking to somebody who is, uh, who is over you or in a higher authority than you, 
but you speak to them in an un, unworthy manner. You talk to them in an unseemly way. This is the same. This might start in a home where this is dishonoring of a father and a mother. This is dishonoring of, of a of a spiritual authority that is put over somebody, and this is a sin that goes all the way back. This is the Ten Commandments: honor your father and mother. But that that theme or that a principle continues on with anyone who is in any position positional authority over you. The people who act wickedly, who act with no righteousness, this is one of the signs that you will see. When you see somebody, whether this this might be a college class and you might have a student that starts speaking to the professor as if they uh, as if there's a as if they're less than or that they don't know anything and you might sit back and you'd be like, "Whoa, what's the, what's going on here where this person is clearly um arguing against this this authority on a certain matter what it is is this is a sign of somebody who truly has darkness in their heart that has wickedness in them that would speak evil of any sort of authority over them this is just some of the signs that we see around us knowing that when we see these things the lord has made it very clear on multiple occasions god will judge those who walk in wickedness and iniquity he will absolutely, he does not let the guilty go unpunished. And when we find ourselves amongst that particular behavior, we ourselves have to be concerned. Now, we can trust the Lord that the Lord might deliver us in our righteousness, but we should never speak as if we have any righteousness for ourselves when we find ourselves in that situation. I guarantee you Lot was in a great deal of fear for his life when he was allowed to escape. But now when those judgments come, we have a lesson that we can learn, of course, from Lot's wife. We know the story of Lot's wife where, of course, as they're escaping him and his two daughters, and Lot's wife obviously is running away, but however, she does a terrible thing when it comes to the deliverance of God, and that is she looked back. She looked back to what she had there in Sodom and Gomorrah. As terrible as that place was, there was judgment coming, but there was something that caused her to yearn for what was there what to to, to that, that she was missing the wickedness if if i could say that and we have a reference to lot's wife the messiah himself used lot's wife as a teaching example when he was explaining and he's talking about what will the end of days be like and if you go to luke chapter 17 there toward the end of the chapter he's talking about what it will be like at the end of the age it'll be like it was like the days of noah and it would there will be these judgments that will be coming and there's a warning that is given to us as uh, that talking about lot talking about his wife and so let me read here now luke chapter 17 and we will let's go ahead and let's start at verse 22 and we'll go ahead and read the majority of this passage here he said to his disciples, this is the Messiah speaking, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there, but do not go after them and follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heavens shines to the other part of heavens, so also shall the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. 
But on that day, Lot went out of Sodom. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save, the, save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that, in that night, there will be two men in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other one will be left. Two women will be grinding together, and one will be taken, and the other left. Two men will be in the field, and one will be taken. And the other left. This is obviously talking about in the day of judgment. In the day of judgment. There will be those that will be delivered. And there will be those that will be punished. There will be those that die in that judgment. And ones that will be delivered. And we have that reference there of Lot's wife. Who looked back in that very curious verse there. Verse 33 of Luke 17. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Obviously, what we're talking about here is we're talking about maybe two different definitions of the word life. Obviously, if you seek to save your life, your physical life, so that you might say a lot, stay alive, that you'll lose your life, like you'll die. Okay, so I'm trying to save my life, my physical life, but I'm going to die. But however, if I lose my life, if I die, I will then be saved. Well, if I'm trying to escape judgment, how does that necessarily make sense? May I submit that you can interpret that verse looking at this way. Not your physical living body that is the life you're trying to preserve, but perhaps the life that you had is what you would seek to preserve, and then your physical life will die because you will be looking back to what you had previously. That's the way I like to interpret this verse. That when you lose your life, you lose... All right, so if judgment is coming... And so if a great judgment, a whirlwind is coming, you're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose all your belongings. But you will get your life, your family, your person, and you're out of way of whatever that judgment is. And you will lose the life that you knew, the house, the belongings, the blessings, the, the, what you used to eat on the, on the regular. All of those things you will lose. But your physical life will be preserved. That's what we have to learn and understand. But if you seek to preserve those things, if you seek to, oh, well, I, I, I got to make sure I bring this and I got to bring that and I got to make sure I have those parts of my life present or I'm not going to feel like I'm living anymore. Well, you know what? When the judgment comes, you'll get caught up in it. And that's, of course, what the lesson we learned from Lot's wife who looked back. Why did, why did she look back? Well, one could say, hey, man, that seems kind of harsh because there's fire and brimstone coming out of heaven. Wouldn't somebody want to see miracles of God? But no, we, we obviously know that spiritually she was looking back for another reason, not because she wanted to look at the explosion of what was happening in the city, but there was something she still yearned for in that city, in that wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what we have to learn to not do. We have to learn to know that it's like, look, when the judgment is coming, that we are, Lord, I'm getting caught up with you. There is nothing that, is, that, that I own that I'm going to need to save so that you can save me, save for my family. I'm going to grab my wife. I'm going to grab my kids. And that is what, Lord, take us there. We can lose our belongings. We can lose our house. We can lose our car. We can lose all of those things. But when the time comes that judgment is coming, that is the attitude we must have toward the Lord. Because we have the warnings here in the scripture. This is the kind of believers we need to be. 
ones that walk in faith the way Abraham did, following after the Lord, believing his promises. What God has said, if he says we will be delivered, that we believe it wholeheartedly, and there's not any sort of thought in the back of our head that somehow we have the power to preserve our life or that, that, that something that we do is going to be, uh, that's going to contribute to our deliverance. No, it's going to be the Lord and the Lord alone. He will receive all glory, authority, and all power to him for whatever deliverance needs to take place. We do want to have that faith, just like Abraham did. Just like when God said, and I already said this last week, and I say this every time we talk about Abraham, Abraham waited 25 years for, his, for the promise of his son and his seed to be born so that all the families of the earth could be blessed. 25 years. We in this country can't wait 25 minutes for one thing or another, if we have to wait that long for a meal, we seem to completely lose ourselves, lose our minds. Abraham had so much faith, and it was that faith and the way Abraham carried himself that allowed for God to call him his friend. What was the thing that, that God said of Abraham? If we go back, when they're negotiating for um, you know, when, when God says, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, should we tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And he says this of Abraham. I absolutely love this, that when he's speaking of Abraham, shall I hide from him what I am about to do? But then God says to God, and he says, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. God says that of Abraham. And this is after he has given hospitality. This is after he has kept the promises. This is after he circumcised himself and his whole family and shown the, 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 favor, the uh, hospitality to the Lord. That God then says this of Abraham. What an amazing testimony that is. Don't you want God to say the same of you? That it's like, you've shown this. Now he now says this. He has the ability and he will command his children and his household after him. It's after that testimony is given of Abraham does his promised son actually be born. Isaac wasn't born yet. But after this testimony, this is a part of the blessing upon him that Isaac will be born. He is, Abraham has now proven himself to be ready to father that son and to teach him and his seed the ways of the Lord. And he says that he will do righteousness and justice, or he will sometimes, translations say, perform righteous judgment. That when it comes to judging between matters of one thing or another, that he has righteous judgment, just as the Lord has righteous judgment. The Lord will always judge righteously. He will make the right decision, the right judgment, whether it's mercy, whether it's justice, whether it's the right amount of mercy, the right amount of justice, only God can even those scales and can do that. But what he says of his testimony of Abraham is this, is that Abraham too makes those righteous judgments. So the promise of the son comes so that we now know, so that Isaac, when he comes, he is that, that because of Abraham's faith, Isaac has been born. Uh, believe you me, this might be kind of strange to think of it this way. If Abraham had ever wavered in his faith prior to Isaac being born, do you think it's possible God might have found another that Abraham has proven himself through 25 years of not being worthy of the promised son, and then Abraham actually never would have the promised son? 
it's possible when he messes up, if he messed up in his life. But Abraham's faith stood strong. He believed in the promises of God. That is the biblical definition of faith. So now when we're talking about Isaac, Isaac was born. And Isaac, there was a great rejoicing when Isaac was born of Sarah. He was the fulfillment of the promised son. Paul references Isaac and he uses him in a, te- in a form of teaching here. If we go to Romans chapter 9, uh, Paul is speaking of Isaac and talking about that he is the fulfillment of this promised generation. A promise of a future, if you will. That we now, because Isaac's been born, then now is, is showing that God fulfills his promises and that we should get caught up and be a part of that family, the family of Isaac. It's, of course, through that seed through Isaac, that then Jacob is born, hence the entire nation of Israel, hence all of the kings, all of the prophets, and the physical lineage of the Messiah himself are all through this line, through this seed. We want to be a part of that family. You know, whenever we have family, sometimes we have certain sides of the family that maybe we like a little bit more than the other. Maybe one's not as weird. One, one doesn't, you don't have the black sheep of the family on that side. You know, it's like your, your mom's side of the family. I got certain aunts and uncles over there. Your dad's side of the family got certain aunts and uncles over there. But mm, the ones on that side are a little bit different than the ones on this side. You know what I'm saying? Well, this is when it comes to the family of Abraham. Abraham and his seed went throughout the entire earth. We have the descendants of Ishmael that came, of course, through Hagar. That we have all a whole other uh, nations of people that all came through that line, but we have to, but we should desire, we all desire to be in the family of Abraham, but we should desire to be in perhaps the right side of the family, the one of promise, the one of the spirit, not the one of the flesh, not the one of selfishness or selfish desires. Paul says this in Romans chapter nine, starting at verse six, it says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, but they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children, uh, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. This is going back to the promise of what God said when he said it will be through Sarah that the son is born. Not Hagar, not the bond woman, not through Ishmael will the seed be. And he's not the child of promise, but through Sarah and through Isaac, he is the child of promise. So just like it says right there, not all who are uh, all Israel are of Israel, not who say that they are in the seed in the family of Abraham truly are a part of Abraham. Like I said, we want to be counted in the seed of Abraham, but through the child of promise, not the child of the flesh. If we go now to Galatians chapter four. This is where we're talking once again more about this exact same concept. Paul is kind of teaching the same way, obviously, to another group of people, to the Galatians now. So in Galatians chapter 4, it says this. Let's start at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. 
But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for the Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is the bondage with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children, and she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him that was born according to the Spirit. Even so, it is now, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. But then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. This is, of course, a once again, another passage of Scripture that some people take out of context as far as saying that because of this being the case is that he's likening unto the covenant and the words that came from Mount Sinai as being bondage, that we then are somehow supposed to cast that away for instead the spirit of the law that we are now children of promise through Messiah Yeshua. He said multiple times, Paul has said in multiple other times about how, no, we do not void the law by now the giving of the Spirit, or that the Messiah now has come, that we, now the law is voided. But what it is, is this, is that we are to have the law written upon our hearts, that we are to have it be a part of our lives, not so much so that we're doing so that we might earn our place in the kingdom by our works, by what we do, by following the law, but know that we have the Spirit inside of us. And that we are a part of the family of Abraham through Isaac and through his seed, child of promise, not children according to the flesh. Look, this is, what, this is how I like to talk about Ishmael. The fact that Ishmael was born, that Sarah gave her maid woman to Abraham and say, Hey, let her bear a child for me. This was before the promise was given to Sarah that she would have a son in one year's time that she would have a son and that Isaac was actually born. What it was was this, was she was trying to figure out how to fulfill the promise of God under her own power. What can we do in this world, in this age, to show that God's promises are being fulfilled? Let me, as I say that, I would hope that you would sort of recognize that's not really the way we should go about things. That because God has given us a promise that something's going to happen, does that mean that we're supposed to work under our own power with our own devices and our own schemes to show that God has fulfilled his promises? The answer is no. God can do that all on his own. Through miraculous works and miraculous deeds, God can show himself to be faithful and fulfill his promises. Sarah thought that if we bear Abraham a son in the way we know how to do it, that then God's promise will be fulfilled and Ishmael will then be that promise of the seed. But God said, no, that is not how my promises are fulfilled. But that's what it is to be a child of the flesh because we try to do things with our flesh to show that God is faithful. 
God is faithful all by himself. What we have to do is we have to submit to what God has said and not try to do things for ourselves. This is the mistake that people make with the Torah and with the covenant from Mount Sinai. And this is what I think Paul is saying here in the book of Galatians. We think that because we have the Torah, because we can read those commandments, that we can do those things do with all of our power and with all of our might, and I can show myself to be the child of God because I keep the commandments and I keep them so good. I do all of these commandments here. I've never committed that commandment here. I got my buddy over here that he breaks that commandment all the time, but I'm good on this commandment here. And we in our own power try to show that we are faithful to the Lord. That is not how we are to follow the Torah. We are not to follow it in a way that we're trying to show with our own power and with our own works that we are the children of God, that God has chosen us, that we have salvation. No, au contraire. We are chosen by God because God chooses us. He chose us first. We must carry ourselves in a way and walk in a way to where we are a blessing to those around us. And in doing so, what we do is we have to keep the Torah not to show ourselves approved, but to walk in the blessing and uh, what God has promised to give to us. Good things, blessings. Don't kill anybody because then you won't end up in prison. Don't steal from your neighbor. That way your labor will love you. All of these things is what we do so that we are blessed in the course of our life. This is the mistake people make with the Torah. And this is what Paul was speaking against. Don't use the works of Torah to somehow show yourself to be approved under your own power so that you will prove to yourself you're a child of the flesh and that your flesh can deliver you. No, be a child of promise. Be a child of, of, of the, the freedom of, of, of the child of Sarah and of Isaac and of Jacob and of Israel and walk in that way that you have been adopted in into that family through the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. That is who we should be, that we should not use the Torah to show ourselves approved. The Torah gives us blessing, and the Torah is not nullified by following the Spirit and following the teachings of Yeshua. But some use the Torah for that, purposes, for that purpose, and that is what Paul is speaking against. We are not justified by our works, but we're justified by faith. Go with me now to James chapter 2. Where, as here in the New Testament, we're going through the pattern of the Torah portion and, and, and what we learn from the, what Abraham did and what his faith was. If we go to James chapter 2, starting at verse 14, it says this. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? This is, this is going back to the whole thing that, that works and faith, they have to work together. You can't choose one or the other. You can't choose the Messiah and do all your Torah, and you can't use Torah to show yourself approved. This is the balance that we're obviously teaching here. Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, also faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And it was called and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. The two have to be in unison. Abraham, yes, he had the faith. He believed in the promises of God. But if he did not circumcise himself when God said to, he would have not fulfilled the sign of the covenant that God gave to him. And if when he was called by God to go and offer his son Isaac, and he did not gather the wood, if he did not take his son, if he did not tie the ropes and bound his son's wrists and his feet and laid him upon the altar and about to do that, then his faith would not have counted for anything. You can't rely on just one or the other. Because if Abraham was doing that without any faith in God, then he was a crazy man by doing that to his son. But no, this is showing through Abraham that com- the combination of faith and works are necessary. This is about us walking in spirit and truth. We can't only walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. We all have flesh. We all are born in the flesh. We all woke up this morning because we all needed sleep last night. We all are flesh. But we must walk in that, of course, because we because that's the existence that we live in. But we must balance that with the spirit of faith, which is what Abraham had. They must come together. And Abraham showed himself 100 percent without question to have faith in God. What faith did he have? You read that passage and you're like, Abraham, what are you doing? Are you crazy? God says, go and sacrifice Isaac, this promised son, the one you waited 25 years to be born, and, and, and through your, your barren wife, who was 90 years old, past the, chi- the age of childbearing, and you're going to go and sacrifice him on the altar? Well, there's a lot of faith going on behind the scenes. You know what one of the things I like to say about Abraham? How much faith he had? He believed in the power of resurrection. Resurrection, the thing that in all in our Christian faith that we believe in the Messiah, the thing that proves our faith that the Messiah has conquered death, that yes, he died a mortal death, but he rose again. That takes a lot of faith, especially walking in this day and age. You don't really see that very often now, do you? Abraham obviously believed in it because look, if I'm look, God, you said that through him, through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He doesn't have any sons at this time. He was about 30 some years old as old as possibly 37, could not have been any younger than 27 based on some chronology studies there. Aber, uh, Isaac was a, was a young lad at this time and in about his 30s. And he hadn't had any sons yet. He wasn't even married yet. And so his seed can't be the one that all the, that, that all the families of the earth will be blessed if he's dead. But God, I'm going to follow what you said anyways. Abraham believed that even if he slayed him, that he would be resurrected. There'd be a new body and his son Isaac would still be there. He believed in the resurrection. That's why the faith of Abraham is necessary for believing in the Messiah. Is because believing that the resurrection happened and it's possible is what gives us hope, gives us hope for a future and that we have a faith in the Messiah that the world doesn't have. The world doesn't believe that, that once you die that you will, can come back. Other religions have taken this idea and says, oh, no, of course you'll come back, but you'll come back as a, this thing here or that thing there or whatever. No, no, no. I believe that when somebody dies, that God, I believe in a God that has the power to raise them from the dead because he has the power over death. And he's proven that with Yeshua of Nazareth.
it's amazing the parallels between that binding of Isaac and the sacrifice of the Messiah. I love it when it says right there, um, when it's back to that, that he bound his son Isaac. He, he tied ropes around his wrists. And in fact, that's the, the Hebrew word there, akad, I believe it is, is the same word that's also used for stripes or for, for like, like, like a striping or a scarring. And so it literally could say and could read that Abraham striped his son's wrists and laid him upon the altar of sacrifice. Believe you me, I believe this. It doesn't say this explicitly in the scripture, but I believe that Isaac was permanently scarred from this happening, that the, that the ropes were tied. Abraham's faith was tied so tight that there was a permanent scar on his wrists from his binding and being laid upon the altar. This is the same pattern and parallel of the Messiah Yeshua, our promised son, the promised savior, that he too has scars on his wrists. We believe the nails went through the wrists, not through the hands. They wouldn't have been able to support his weight. And the Messiah himself had scars on his wrists showing faithfulness. In the case of Isaac, it shows the faithfulness of his father. In the case of the Messiah Yeshua, it shows the faithfulness of our Heavenly Father to fulfill the promises and to bring about another lamb that is the sacrifice that is needed for us, for our sin and for our breaking of the covenant. Those scars on those wrists show the sign of faithfulness of not only our father Abraham, but also of our Heavenly Father. So when we look at the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, the promised son, we cannot deny the parallels between the faith of Abraham and the faith we have in our Messiah Yeshua and the promise of his son being our Savior, our Lord and Savior, who has forgiven all of our sins, who has redeemed us for out of the slavery, who gives us the atonement and the covering for our uncleanness, and who is our hope, the way, the truth, the life by which we walk out our most holy faith. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction once again for our father Abraham, for everything that we can learn. Father, thank you for the faithfulness of Abraham. Thank you for the faithfulness, Lord, of Paul and Peter and all those, Lord, who continued to walk in all the teachings that they learned from Yeshua. When you walked this earth and when you taught your instructions, your Torah on this earth. Father, you are the author and the finisher of our faith, Lord. You spoke with authority over the words, over the Torah, Lord, because you are the lawgiver. Father, we submit to you, Lord. May we follow you in everything that we do. Father, may our works not be uh, done alone without faith. And Father, may our faith not be there without any uh, actions to show for what we believe. But, Father, may we walk both in faith and in works, walk in spirit and in truth. And, Father, may we walk and be spirit, walk in the spirit and be children of the promise, as we also believe, Lord, that we are descendants of the ancients, Lord, even of their natural flesh. Lead us and guide us in everything that we do. Protect us, Lord, from the wicked, from the judgments that will come upon this earth one day. Protect your righteous, Lord. We thank you, Lord, and deliver us from evil. And, Father, cause us to submit wholeheartedly before you and not look back for anything that you may have given to us in a previous life, Father. But may we always look forward to the promises that you will give to us in the kingdom with your inheritance. So, Lord, we bless you. We thank you on this Sabbath day. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.
you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Oh, 